If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. every day that we get to meet in the pod basement. I know. It's very exciting. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Same. I'm very happy to be here and to have you here. Mm. We're missing our Courtney. We are missing our Courtney. But Patrice stepped in with a really yummy Mm. um, Moscow mule with fever tree ginger. Yes. You cannot (sighs) do Moscow mule without fever tree Mm. ginger beer. It's so good. And a sprig of rosemary, which it wants to climb up my nose every time I drink it, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, it, yeah. Rosemary's supposed oh, to like favorite. cleanse and open up the mind, or it's supposed to like give you kind of like energy, like clear your mind and energy when you sniff it. I, I need to sniff rosemary. I do it every time I pass by your rosemary bush. I grab some off and I. But I turn into like that girl from Saturday Night Live where I'm sniffing my fingers all the time because I don't actually pull the rosemary out. It's just on my hand, so I'm like, right, which is a little gross. <laughs> it's Full okay. Displeasure. <laughs> it's okay i found a recipe because okay moscow mule which is you know vodka like two ounces of vodka and then ginger beer and lime juice and there's something called a kentucky mule which uses bourbon instead of vodka but that's the so it's bourbon lime it's, it's bourbon lime beer. and then ginger beer interesting it is interesting it, it would give it kind of warmer notes maybe so you haven't tried it yet i haven't tried it yet no i'm on the fence on that one yeah but you know we've tried a lot of things right. so i'm well, willing yeah i mean <laughs> that would be far from the weirdest thing that we have tried <laughs> or the see now from a um a morning text from courtney we've all determined that we're gonna drink warm bloody mary's next week yes which is a thing it is a thing don't come at me (laughs) it was my idea nobody's on board but me but (laughs) they you know they love me so they'll try oh my gosh (laughs) well i didn't used to like well y'all y'all heard me drink like one of the first bloody mary's i ever liked because courtney makes them and right like i don't usually like bloody mary's and now suddenly i do you do we age. Our tastes change. They do change. Um, absolutely. But yeah, I just can't get on board with cold tomato juice. That's my thing. <laughs> I want to. I want to. There is nothing. There is not one thing about a Bloody Mary that I do not like besides the physical temperature of it. Mm. Or maybe the ice. Oh. <laughs> I, I You've got a problem with ice. I have a problem with ice. <laughs> I, I like ice and water. And that's it. Like, if I'm going to drink it, like, if I'm going to drink a Coke, which I rarely do, it better not have ice in it. It's like, I want it. But it needs to be cold. It it needs to be cold. It needs to be from the fridge. Okay, good. But, like, ice? No. Huh. No. It's, It's the, I think it's the flavor. It's the melting, like. Watering down. Watering down the drink that really affects me. Yeah. I can see that. That'd be a problem. 
What always affects me is in restaurants when you get all this ice and then like you're trying to drink and it all sticks together in the bottom and then it smashes you in the face and embarrasses you (laughs) in front of everybody that you know. Which Dimitri Martin had a really funny bit about in his like in his comedy show like ages ago. (laughs) Anyway, good story. (laughs) True story. (laughs) All right. Let's see. So Moscow Mule Mm -hmm. in the pod basement. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I know what I wanted to do. Hmm. I wanted to give a shout out to Chrissy G, who left us a comment on um, the Apple podcast page and gave us five stars. Thank Aww. you very much. Aww. She says, Marlea and Patrice speak to my soul. I found the Strange South podcast a few days ago, and I'm currently binging. As an Alabama native, I can't begin to tell you how much... Hold on, sorry, I had to click more. How much (laughs) I enjoy listening to these two ladies. When I'm listening, I feel like I'm hanging out with friends. Awesome. Yay! She said, awesome listen, and I highly recommend. Thank you so much. I'm so glad. I needed that feel good. Yeah. Because I've had such... A crappy couple of weeks. <laughs> you really have, man. It's like everywhere you turn. So we are we are in the pod basement. Um, it's a couple of weeks. Like we wanted to record last week, mm-hmm. but uh, the basement flooded, and it's because of my air condition. So we went like not only like without air condition during the hottest day mm-hmm. of the summer, but um, but with a flood, but with a flood and having to like clean and rip out closets and. It's just been a mess, but I feel good now, and on the downslope of that, I'm not going to put anything out into the universe, because nope. the universe listens. Thank you, universe. <laughs> and um, that just made me feel good when I read that today. And yay. we also picked up a new patron. Awesome, yay. And I will have to um, talk about them during our after talk, because I don't have that pulled up right now. <laughs> But thank you, new patron. <laughs> thank I you. I noticed you, and I appreciate you. <laughs> I had I didn't have a lot for upfront, but there were a couple of podcasts that like I've listened to recently that I just had to mention. Oh, good. Because one of them, there's a podcast that Box Fan Chad turned me onto, and it's called "You're Wrong About," and it's just these two people who talk about these kind of uh, cultural assumptions a lot of the time mm-hmm. that you know have completely wrong and like oh, you, wow. you believe the wrong thing about this all this time right and which is basically all of the south so many things yeah so many things. so many things but one of the things like right after he told me i needed to listen to it or maybe not right after but when the first time i picked it up the most recent episode that they had released was called it, it was about the book the satan seller mm. and the satan seller is the book that and i mentioned this on the show i meant to look up which episode this would have been but it would have been ages ago to me anyways Mm -hmm. maybe not to y'all who are binging but there was this christian comedian who was going around to youth groups in the early 90s late (gasps) 80s who said that he was a previous high wizard of the satanic church right he wrote this book this horrible horrible horribly written book called the satan seller which just from reading was it it, was it badly written oh no it was very badly written or was it what they were saying was bad well both Both. because what he was saying was 100 percent false it turned out like down the road 
but I turn, you know, I pick up this new podcast that Chad tells me to listen to, and here comes this oh! this dude that I had talked about on the show. So if you're wow. um, if you're interested in a fun listen, and you ever wanted to, if you were curious about learning more about that guy or that book, mm-hmm. and just never got around to it, go listen to You're Wrong About because they have a two part. Right now, two parts are out. They're going to do a full three parts on this book. Wow. And the third part is debunking all of the bullshit that he throws in the book. But a lot of it is reading, like, just reading passages of this terrible, mm. I mean, like, misplaced kind like, of like lingo. Reading, and... uh, my dad wrote a porno. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's a shout out. That's a connection. And the other one is... Um, well, an apology, because Patrice, you've probably still been getting these, but for some reason, my stories at the Strange South started going to my spam folder, oh. which it never did. And um, so I just found several messages in spam that I'm sure you got, but um, one of them was from one of the people in our fan group named Kenneth, mm-hmm. who said that there was a podcast he was starting to listen to called Camp Hell. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I'm I'm short a podcast. I'll go ahead and and pick that one up and it's i mean it's a big trigger warning podcast i mean it's disturbing but it's a really interesting and really well done like locally sounds like like southern locally well done story about a um like a, a boys camp in douglasville georgia right and um so that was a fascinating it's um I think I'm getting close to the end of it now. Um, podcast, but yes. you know, just a recommendation. Yeah, shout out to, to Kenneth, one. man. Kenneth has been like bringing it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And if you're not on our fan group on Facebook and you want to know what we're talking about, go to Facebook and ask to join the fans of the Strange South. Answer all the questions because otherwise we will say no and um, prove to us that you're a cool person. <laughs> right. Even if your friend invited you. Um, you still have to answer the questions. Yes, because we protect our people in that group. So. We do. <laughs> we're, we're a little we, cheesy. <laughs> we are definitely protective of that group. But we're not assholes. Well, I mean, no. <laughs> I am an asshole, but <laughs> we're not assholes like that. So, True you confessions know. <laughs> of the strange sound. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's my stuff. That's what I got. Whoop. All right. So let me check here and see. I think maybe... You go first. Oh, I do. Because I took a really long time last time. I do go first. It was like three hour. No, podcast. it was It felt like that. <laughs> it didn't feel like it to me. <laughs> I was like fascinated. I was like over here with like my oxygen tank. Like <laughs> breathing. It's because, because you were doing a three part series. And so yes. the second part had to be like your return of the, no, your, your emperor strikes back. Episode, exactly. Right. So here comes the return of the Jedi. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, this one, um, this one kind of popped out at me. Um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago and I started looking it up and I, t- I, <laughs> I messaged Patrice and I was like, this is going to be a meander. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite. I love connect the dots. This is a connect the dots, but I, I realized I had been trying to, you know, it's been several weeks since we've been able to record and I've mm-hmm. seriously been working on this for several weeks. Bless you. <laughs> B- believe it or not. Once you hear it, you're probably going to be like that bullshit was several <laughs> weeks long. But, um, uh, I ended up deciding to cut it in half. So this is part one of a two-part, I think, too, because it connects to so many other, like, a little random. And it's all these little random things. So here we go. Okay. I'm just going to start. I'm here for it. So 
in Murphy, North Carolina, there is a little, you know how sometimes small towns, like across the entire country, will have their own little historical museum. Right. And so this is the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy, North Carolina. And it's, um, like you would expect, it's not particularly big. And if, <laughs> this is burping because there's ginger beer in me. <laughs> there's a, a guy called the Carpetbagger on YouTube who, I'll, I'll leave a link in our, um, our show page but he actually does a little tour of it if you after this if you want to see any of this um but in this little historic museum in murphy north carolina um there's something that people come to see it's not just like the old saws that people used in their fields you know which some of them can be so um there was a guy a history teacher who works as like a docent at this little museum and I was reading a Strange Carolinas article about this, and this guy had told the author that um, this weird thing has come into their possession because in 1838, there was a guy named Felix Ashley who bought um, six acres six acres of property in Murphy, and it's like the North Carolina, um, it's like the mountains, it's kind of like in the... Um, it's it's near Tennessee. It's like the okay, it's, so the southern, it's like straight east of Chattanooga, I think. Uh, okay, um, but um, so in eighteen forty one, like a couple of years after he buys the property, he's digging it up because he wants to plant. And while he's digging, he finds this weird statue, and you know it's eighteen forty one, so he puts it on a sled and he drags it back up to his house. And they say he just leaned it up against the well house. And God knows, I don't know how long it was there or what, but it didn't go into the the museum until twenty fifteen. So he or somebody else just had it in personal, you know, storage, storage somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. So what this is, and they keep it in this little glass case and it's like chained to the back as though it's going to jump out and get you if they oh, let it go. Wow. But I think it's just off balance. Um, but it's this statue and it's made of soapstone and it's um, like about three feet high. And it, it kind of looks like it's two little Siamese twins. They're, they're round headed little bald creatures that mm. are back to back and attached to each other. And they've got like these little indentation eyes and they do each have just a little nose and a little mouth, but they don't seem to have, they may have kind of the suggestion of arms, but they don't really have arms and they've got short little legs. They're like, it's almost like you're looking at some weird child or they're light colored. Um, Is it more like, would you see like an art history, like primitive statues? Yeah, it, that would or? be the first thing that you'd think probably if you don't think aliens, which is the first thing that I think because oh. they look okay. like little tiny aliens. Oh, but yes, they do. They it, it's like a primitive carving kind of um, kind of thing, and <clears throat> so um, the the museum says that like it's the soapstone is painstakingly like chipped away by another stone. So that would be how primitive the carving would be or how maybe ancient or old. So, you know, they honestly do look to me like slightly alien-like if we're going to go the weird route like right, right away. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, and, and to be honest, North Carolina has a history of alien sightings. You know, they've got like, but most of them are on the coast and the Blue Ridge Mountains where this murphy is is like also home to like a mysterious it's like the brown mountain lights which are supposed to be these mysterious like right unexplained repeating lights and apparently also in the blue ridge is the willis observatory which is listed as the only quote-unquote official ufo landing pad in the united states 
Say what? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that for a future episode. I'm write that down <laughs> right now. Official. He says it's official. Um, they said something, and on their website, they said something about like hosting three. They plan to host three UFO landings a year. And I was like, who do you plan what? this with? <laughs> who, who, who's your people? Who are you talking to? Um, but anyway, so, you know, I, I kind of figured there would be some content on like people conjecture that this was some ancient alien sort of connection but you don't really find a lot of that so i guess it's just not a popular theory that right. these, that that's what they are right um the guy who uh, the teacher who was the docent at the museum that explained where the the statue came from he said in this article um according to myths and legends the cherokee moved into this these mountains around like 1100 1200 ad which uh, is up for debate but they said when they moved there that there was a race of people already there. And um, it said the people that were here, according to the legends, were short, white, flat-faced, and blue-eyed. They were so blue-eyed that they couldn't see to work in the sunshine, so they came out in the evening to do their work. Fuck. So basically like this nocturnal race of tiny white people. Uh, vampires? And <laughs> the Cherokees <laughs> called them the moon-eyed people. And it's he said eventually they were displaced by the Cherokees. So this is the the take that the museum takes on these statues is that these are statues of the Moon-Eyed people. Oh, wow. That existed before the Cherokees were there. Right. And, you know, it's all conjecture. Um, you know, the the museum, I mean, I don't want to, like, trivialize the, the work of any local museum. But, right. you know, it's not like... They don't, they don't it's have not the, the research Smithsonian. Yeah, exactly. It's well, like they, they don't have intensive research on it. And it doesn't... From what I could find, and correct me, please, um, if you know more about this, but from what I could find, nobody had really written which, anything about it. Or which is really surprising. It. Because did you That's read... It's a pretty big artifact, It's right? a big artifact. And did you read that... Um, I think Jen or Ellen post. I can't remember. Somebody posted this in the fan group um, about the Appalachian Mountains being the yes. oldest mountains. That like, may have been Brooke. Okay, that no, that, that was Brooke. Yeah. Brooke did that. So Brooke posted about the Appalachians being the oldest known mountains and all the and stuff. That all was there. oh my god, all you know, uh, Earth. You know, yeah. and uh, how Which it, if you didn't read that thread, you go to the fan no, group you and should. read it. It's super it, cool. It is excellent. Yeah. Um, because it talks about, you know, how the Appalachians and um, the United States was before the plates like moved. It was a mountain range that was as high as like the the Andes or whatever or the Mount Everest or mm. I forget what they compared it to. But uh, it continues over there like in Scotland and, and, you know, Europe. And you can see they draw. And I was like, it's crazy. And it's yeah. crazy. It's really cool. Yes. Okay. But it's go ahead. It's a completely different way to look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a completely history. different. Yeah. What's history and, you know, these things that could be found. Exactly. So, like, you know, like I said, like this place this hasn't seemed to have, have done any detailed research on it. Nobody has written much on it that I could find. Um, right. Again, correct me. But it also, also could be like Bubba, like seriously. whittling, this, you know, tool you know, shit. So you never really know. All of it is conjecture. I mean, this very museum, if you go to the, because these, these little fellows are in the basement. The main level, 
is filled with dolls that were all collected from one local collector who had to buy a double wide trailer just to keep them in. Oh. Like that's the whole upper floor. So, mm. I mean, we're not, you know, yeah. I mean, you mm. know, yeah. it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Though they're very nicely kept. And if you want to see them again, that mm -hmm. video is wow. eye opening. There are a lot of clowns in there. Y'all. Mm. I mean, it's, I don't think I could physically walk in, but <laughs> just saying, <laughs> but so, they don't really know who made the statue. Um, they don't really know that it's a depiction of these moon-eyed people. Um, but I was like, well, what? I've never heard this before, this moon-eyed people thing. So I kind of figured, well, let's dig into this and see where this story came from. So the first reference of the moon-eyed people was from a book from 1797 by Benjamin Smith Barton. And it was called New Views on the Origin of the Tribes and Nations of America. So he was like researching the indigenous peoples of America in 1797. And um, one of the passages in there says the Cherokee tell us that when they first arrived, or it's it's like it's in old English. So it's like when they first arrived in the country, which they inhabit, <laughs> they found it perfect by a certain moon-eyed people who could not. So the moon-eyed people couldn't see in the daytime. Wow. And then it says the wretches they expelled. And that's the entire reference to the moon-eyed people said wow. when they moved here, the area was possessed by moon-eyed people. They could not see in the daytime. They were expelled. Are you sure they weren't owls? I know, right? <laughs> Maybe they were just barn owls. Barn owls. But, but, you know, so it's just one little sentence. Right. You got one identifying one bit of information. Which is huge. And also, this story was told by one white guy to another white guy oh. who put it in the book because the one white guy said he was interpreting for the Cherokee mm. and felt like he knew them very well. Um, mm -hmm. So later it's mentioned again in a book 1902 by James Mooney called the myths of the Cherokee and he talks about someone who said that the Cherokee had told him and again this is a white guy right relaying something that he said the Cherokee had told to him that the Cherokee had found white people near the head of the little Tennessee with forts extending thence down the Tennessee as far as Chickamauga Creek that the Cherokee had made war against them drove them away entered into a treaty and the the white people said they would leave um as long as they were allowed to depart in peace and then later he says he describes their houses as small circular structures of upright logs covered with earth that had been dug out from inside kind of like little little like hobbit houses or like right. like pit houses like tunnels mm -hmm. and then there was another passage that said harry smith a half breed which you know this mm -hmm. is where we are right um born in 1815 uh told the author that when he was a boy, he had been told by old women, an old woman a tradition of a race of very small people, perfectly white, who once came and lived for some time on the site of the ancient mound on the northern side of the Hiawassee, um, a few miles above the present Murphy, North Carolina. So that's in this, this second book in 1902. So it's like we've gone from a, just flat out a people who couldn't see in the daytime now it's about white people. Right. <laughs> so now they're white people. And now they're very, very small white people. Um, and, you know, it's fair to assume, you know, look at your, your like, original resource and everything, that any white person's understanding of the indigenous peoples, when either of these publications was written, would be colored by, like, white supremacy and colonialism. Right. And so this makes the discovery of a pre-Cherokee white people really significant to the people who are writing this new history of the Americas. Right. And a good example of how it's significant is in, in 1968, even, 
there's a park in Georgia, Fort Mountain State Park in Chatsworth, Georgia. And um, one of the things that makes that park unique is that it's got like 855 feet of zigzagging rock walls that are ancient. They, they could be as, as old as like 400 AD. Wow. I mean, really old. Some mm-hmm. of them are six foot tall in places, you know, ruins all over. Um, and in 1968, this park erected plaques about these walls that mentioned this moon-eyed people, which is a legend. Right. Um, but claimed that these prehistoric white people were responsible for all the impressive structures in this park, in this whole area. So again, it's like this white supremacist colonial mindset that like the indigenous tribes are way too savage, way too unintelligent to have done anything right. like this. Right. And so clearly this is, this is white folks. Ha ha ha. White folks did all this. Ha ha ha. Right. And like, so, you know, they're like all it's pretty awesome. Now we realize that all the things we believed are true because white people did this. Right. Um, but, and there were theories that maybe these moon eyed people were albinos. Oh, interesting. Which even the people who advanced those theories, like felt like that somehow made them slightly better than the non albino indigenous people. But there's another theory of their origin that goes even further down this route. So, but albinos, they wouldn't have blue eyes, would they? No, they, well, no, they would have like um I think all do all all albinos have like clearish to pinkish eyes? I don't know. I'll have to look that up. But um no, they wouldn't have white eyes. Right. And also they would have to have been pygmies to match all of these descriptions, right? right? right. And there wasn't I don't I mean maybe there was maybe there's some archaeological evidence of pygmies in the area. I don't know, but Yeah. So the other theory about where like what the moon-eyed people may be is that there were Welsh Indians in Appalachia. Have you ever heard this one before? Welsh? Mm-hmm. Like from Wales? Yeah. So the connecting of the Appalachian yeah, like plates? Almost like it happened, but it didn't. It didn't happen that early. Right. Yes. 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 Kind of okay. like that. Okay. Mm. Interesting. So um, apparently this was really a really popular theory at one time. Um, if you go to some Appalachian like history, like sites and things like that, it's still, it's still advanced as a, like, I don't know, maybe not. No. I mean, some of them like said it as fact, but so the idea that there were these Welsh Indians in America, the gist of it is that in 1100, like 1170 AD, there Would was, you, oh, sorry, I'm I'm still stuck on this. Would you call them Indians? That's I wouldn't. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but no one. Asked that, me. But that's how they identified them. Right? That's how they. That's how they talked about them. Because okay. when they talked about them was primarily in like the British colonial era. Right. Was when it really started being something that they talked about. Okay. So sorry, that's ahead. why they called them that. I think I imagine. Right. Okay. Um. So there was this Welsh prince in a story. 1170 he was supposed to have um his dad was supposed to have died and he had lots of brothers and sisters and there was a rumor that he was like a an illegitimate child anyways and he didn't want to be in this whole like territorial fight over who was going to be in charge of their kingdom in north wales and so he's just like later i'm taking off and so he there was like an epic poem about it in welsh and um it talks about like he grabbed one of his brothers and they just jetted off, you know, on the seas and they landed in this amazingly wonderful place. And, um, it was so great 
that they had to turn right around and sail home and tell everybody about it. And so they sail back to North Wales. They grab a bunch of friends. They turn around to go settle in this place, which I'm just like, what are the logistics of this? Like, how easy is it to sail back and forth? Like, I don't even want to go like <laughs> three miles down to the Walmart, know. you know, especially because they make it sound like it's just him and his bro, you know, right? But let's go take a boat ride. I know. So they end up going, um, they grab all these people and they go back and nobody ever hears of them again. So, you know, again, there's this poem about it. The poem was written in like the 1400s. There's a history written about it in 1584. Um, but it's kind of like King Arthur legends mm. a little bit. It's one of those like, you know, some people exist and some people exist like and loom a lot larger in like the fables that right. come about around them. Right. So in this history that was written in 1584, this God help me, because Welsh is like a really weird language. Yes. <laughs> and so I don't I don't know how to pronounce anything, but the Give guy's name. Shot. I know. This isn't You'll even do that great. bad. I'm just gonna say his name was Humphrey Lloyd, but it's like L L W Y D Lewid Lead. There are there are like like vowels that exist in right. Welsh that I just don't understand how they fit in between the consonants. It's really weird. But so this Humphrey Lloyd Lewid says the land which Madoc sailed to, the prince Madoc sailed to, must needs be some part of that country of which the Spaniards affirm themselves to be the first finders. So he's saying like Madoc has to have gone to this country that the Spanish claim as theirs. And then he goes on in the same like kind of whatever old English or whatever translated tone mm -hmm. that um it is manifest that that country was long before by Britons discovered, before either Columbus or a, a, what he mean is Amerigo Vespucci, or before the Spaniards either, is basically how it translates, like, as best as I can do it. Um, so he's saying, like, so Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, right? Right. And claimed America for Spain, and apparently, like, a hundred years later, the Britons are still kind of pissed about it, like... And so he's writing this thing saying, like, hey, guess what? This prince from Wales went, like, 300 years before Columbus and went to this place. And so it belongs to us, actually. Right. And this happens to come out at exactly the same time as British colonialism starts in, you know, in America, in, right. in North America. So Britain's like, ha, 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 this is ours, ha, ha. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, like I said, there's there's no record of this guy landing in america there's no record of him returning there's nothing it could be just like a john merrill oh, yeah. situation oh yeah you absolutely know. and um however <laughs> that doesn't stop the story from spreading no. right because it's kind of a good story yeah well at least they're not forming committees and hanging people yet amen not yet no. not yet but um so and and british and irish and welsh all end up in appalachia and so they have this story in their back pocket, like when they come, like that mm -hmm. this is really Welsh land. Right. And so it kind of starts getting bigger. So in, in the story that starts getting told, Madoc actually landed in Mobile Bay in Alabama. And um, so he ended up moving in with his people, settling, intermarrying with the indigenous peoples. And voila, we have Welsh Indians. We wow. have like what they call like descendants upon descendants of white as snow Indian people. And I was like, that's not how genetics works. Right. But yeah. <laughs> um, that would be so interesting. Like if we could genetically like geneticists get on it. Mm -hmm. We need to know. We need to know the facts. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the thing is, I think they already have, and they've all said, like, mm, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> but so um, all this was, so uh, this whole Prince Madoc thing was supposed to have happened in 1170. And this takes us back to where we started, because then, you know, even on top of the British saying this all belonged to us before the rest of Europe or whatever, it's also a way for, you know, white supremacist colonists to say everything that's cool mm -hmm. that was made by these indigenous people could only have been made because there were white people who spread their genes among the indigenous people and only the white people made this possible. Right. So I think you could probably throw patriarchy in there too. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. So, and then, so they've got this belief and it's also bolstered by like these other just kind of asinine misunderstandings because people would come to the colonies and they would meet the indigenous tribes who spoke a language that sounded just like gibberish to them. Right. Have you ever heard anybody speak Welsh? Yes. Like, it's, it's gibberish, right? Yeah. Like, if you don't know Welsh... Right. And the thing is, these people didn't know Welsh either. And they're right. saying, like, wait a minute, that word that he said? That sounds a lot like the Welsh word for dog. Mm. And so they're like, they're just like, oh, because you because say you're things not speaking I don't English understand. And you're not speaking English. Exactly. Must be it must be the same, same thing. thing. Yes. So they're saying, like, that they hear Welsh-speaking tribes, which is really, it's most likely just... Right. You know, their imagination. Right. Because they're like, oh, this sounds just as ridiculous as Welsh. And God help. I mean, if there's anybody of, of Welsh, I'm, I'm not trying to knock you. But, no. you know, y'all know it can't be that easy to learn, right? If you didn't grow up in it, that's, right. that's a completely different, like, word form and everything. Well, we yeah, have. it's yes. And yes. So, um, so the story about the Welsh Indians got so popular that Thomas Jefferson who was part Welsh, which or, or claimed to be maybe part Welsh. I don't know. I didn't right. know this. Told Lewis and Clark to search for Welsh Indians when that was part of their, the whole Lewis and Clark ex expedition. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that they were supposed to be doing. And it was like a minor branch of what they were supposed to be doing. Huh. But they were supposed to be looking for Welsh Indians. Okay. Um, and, you know, needless to say, no one ever found any. Mm -hmm. um, so that was another theory about the Moon-Eyed people. Right. Um, and the last theory is a theory I'm going to talk about next week. So, Yay. like, the the last theory, and I'll introduce it, though, because there was this really good Reddit thing that somebody said, is that it's kind of a conflag conflagration. I don't think I ever used that word right, but we're going to say it. Anyway. Okay. That sounds great. Of other stories and misunderstandings of the tribal people and, like, the language and their lore and just kind of a hodgepodge, like, mixing everything up into something new. Mm -hmm. So there was, I, I was, of course, you know, you're looking for stuff like this in stories about this and like you get on reddit mm -hmm. and one of the people that commented on reddit which is you know <laughs> i don't know whether this is accurate right, or not right but Couch it was interesting and it plays into my like flow so we're gonna go with it mm -hmm. um this person says um and the their name on reddit was seven clans it says i'm a cherokee from oklahoma because i'm an artist specializing in cherokee history and folklore i've spent a lot of time studying our stories and Basically saying, like, the moon-eyed people are just, like, a blip on our radar. Like, we we are much less interested in this than you guys are. Well, yeah. Um, and he says, I think the story that's come down to us today only contains a small kernel of Cherokee history or mythology. Um, and he kind of refers back to that original story that was just, like, two lines of, like, there was a people, we chased them away. Right. And he's like, really, I don't think it needed to go any further than that. Wow. And then he says... Um, the use of the term white to describe beings in the histories and mythologies of native people is assumed by non-natives to refer to Caucasians. 
but it's not always the case. Right. He says, our stories tell us that we once had a white council or a peace council and a red council or a war council. Oh. And the white council's made up of priests and older chiefs and the red council's made up of young warriors and young chiefs. So it could have been like monks. It could have been. Yeah. So he's basically saying, and, and the white council would paint themselves with white clay before a council meeting. Oh, um, yeah. And so there are, you know, there are all kinds of things like that that could have meant mm -hmm. and so like basically what you're saying the white it could have been white priests being expelled from the cherokee society you know that could have been what it meant mm -hmm. and there are other things too that that it could have meant but it's so like the white people part of the story may have been just one big overblown right understanding misinterpretation yes yes but there is another part of cherokee lore that might have gotten mixed in with it as well and it kind of bounces back to making a little more sense as far as these two little Siamese soapstone twins in Murphy, because there's a story of the Cherokee little people or the Fae of the mountains of Appalachia. Oh. And that is what we're going to talk about next time. Yes. Oh my gosh. Two parter. Love it. I am all over these moon eyed Fae folks. Moon eyed people. Woo. All right. We'll be back after a second. Do you want more Strange South every week? We can help. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast, to keep the chat going with our whole creepy community. Do you have a story idea for us or a story of your own to share? Email us at stories at thestrangesouth.com. Plus, if you join our Patreon, you not only help support the podcast, you get an exclusive bonus episode for every show and a discount on merch. You can find links to all of these things on our website, thestrangesouth.com, along with photos, links, and show notes from every episode, Strange South t-shirts, mugs, and other goodies. See you there. All right. And we are back. Hello. Hello. <sighs> all right. <laughs> Sorry. Just taking some deep breaths because we are doing part three of Edgar Casey. Bring it. And honestly, I still have 12 hours left on the book. <laughs> uh, I just had to, I had to wrap it up. Mm -hmm. And by wrapping it up, I have 15 pages, y'all. <laughs> I am going to try to make this interesting and not a snooze fest. It is interesting. It is interesting. Oh my gosh. That is, but that, like, my mind is reeling from, like, what you were talking about. Um, just so many things, like, so many questions. One <laughs> of the things, I went, to, um, I was in high school. I went with my um, boyfriend's family to Colorado. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they do up there for tourists is they'll take you, like, on a sleigh ride up the mountain, and then they'll like build a bonfire oh, cool. and pass around like something to drink, you know, <laughs> to keep you warm and, you know, and talk about the area and stuff. I was like, man, that would be so cool if somebody like up in, um, you know, North Carolina, Tennessee would do that and then have like those stories, you know, and have it like, okay, y'all, TM, I trademarked that. <laughs> when we move, when we move up into Appalachia, we're going to do it. We're, We're going to do, do it. it. We're going to do it. We're going to have the big bonfire and have it like a tourist thing. But no, that would totally be something that I would do. That'd be really cool. That would be really cool. Anyway. All right. 
so back to Edgar Casey. When we last left Edgar Casey, <laughs> he was still in Selma, Alabama. He had the railroad thing going on, which wasn't going good because people were taking advantage of him. Um, you know, had the studio in Selma, Alabama that his dad was running. And of course, his dad wasn't the best of people. Um, but it was going because it was still popular. People still wanted photos taken. And his readings, he started getting serious about his readings. In his So in his studio, and this is like with the permission, because if you remember, if you listened to um, the previous episode, his wife, Gertrude, got TB. Mm-hmm. She never really believed, like, all the things that people were saying. You know, she just thought that was just kind of this odd tick her husband had. And she went along with it. And, you know, she was a good Christian woman and whatnot. So, uh, but she never truly believed until she got TB and um, he did a reading for her. So now she's kind of more on board now. So he he gets serious about his readings. He sets up this room in his studio and he puts mementos from friends in there. And it's it's I think they call it the spook room huh. or the spooky room. I can't remember um, what they said. But it's this dedicated room to where he would, you know, lie down and take a nap and do his readings. And it's still so funny. It's still so funny. <laughs> this man, like, figured it out, man. Uh, and he also needed to find a stenographer, somebody to take notes of the readings and then wouldn't be too like weirded out that was the problem there was like plenty of people who interviewed but when they would do a test reading they would totally get freaked out however he found a young stenographer named Gladys Davis um, and she ended up getting married and so her name was Gladys Davis Turner from Alabama and she became his full-time stenographer from the time that she met him when she was 18 until he died and Dang. she even wrote a book called My Years with Edgar Casey, the personal story of Gladys Davis Turner. Hmm. So her ex- first experience, um, and she's sitting there and she's, you know, writing this down. He's doing a reading for uh, this boy that was sick, um, that needed like a diagnosis. But he started talking, um, are really the source, if you remember, the thing that speaks through uh, Edgar is called the source, which is like his subconscious, his higher subconscious, uh, is telling about the body, um, where the body of this missing boy or this lady's missing nephew was. And so she's like writing this all down. And this kind of freaks out like other people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when he starts diagnosing the boy, uh, he starts using words that she had never heard of, like uh, cerebral spinal system and like the different chambers of the heart. He starts like talking in medical terms and then talks like how do you fix it is by using this like Abrams electrical machine, which sidebar here, Abrams was an ad- inventor and considered a quack. And he was like all the time, like building these different electrical machines Um for all different kinds of um, purpose. And it ended up being like he invented the lie detector. Hmm. 
Oh. So he was like, you know, the person, like after he died, they actually used his technology to create the lie detector that's still used today. So was he, was he a quack and that was just like a fluke or? I think he explored every possibility. Oh, okay. So, you know, he was saying like, you know, you can use this to maybe like a defibrillator kind of thing Mm. or, you know, he was experimenting with electricity and the possibilities of what it can do. And he also connected like, you know, maybe more of the spirituality uh, of the time with his electrical machines and vibrations and, and all of that stuff. Uh, he actually, all of his little electrical devices, he patented and he like, he was really rich. He was a millionaire oh, wow. when he died. Uh, but again, consider, because he was trying to push into the medical community, uh, which was coming more and more established of the time, uh, he was considered a quack. Which, I mean, some of this stuff didn't work, but he was, he was like experimenting. But um, most of everybody that came through for the job was shocked by all of this stuff. And she's just like, it didn't faze her. And she was really interested in it. And it actually became her life's work. She, um, she went in and she organized everything. She indexed, she cross-referenced stuff. She would make two copies, one for them to keep, one for the people who were being read to keep. Um, so she formed this system and she did like 14,000 readings. Whoa. So they're like, everything's going okay. Um, uh, of course, money's not great. Money is never great with Edgar Casey. It was always come and go. And he uh, started talking. So, you know, he still has he still has the Texas company, oil company. And then he has, like, some people in New York doing stock stuff. So he has, like, all these people um, who are pretty much taking advantage of him. But he still has, like, his fingers, you know in those in that business and one of these people that he's dealing with is called author lamers and author was a wealthy printer and student of the metaphysics who lived in dayton ohio and he wanted to form a partnership with um casey and you know take all this money and help him create the kc institute of psychic readings um and and do the hospital do the dream that kc wanted to do so that you know he started to raise money uh and he's talking to casey he's like you know why don't you come up to dayton so casey comes up to dayton he leaves his uh family back in selma alabama and um you know, he, he's talking to Casey about doing more astrological readings. Uh, and, of course, everything that Casey have done so far has been, like, more like uh, ailments and medicine kind of stuff and not s- so much about you know, astrology. But um, there had been uh, one of the, um, like, maybe four years earlier, there was like hints in the readings that the source wanted to talk more about astrology and and something besides the medical. And they even like revisited some of the things that the source was wanting to talk about. But Casey and his wife kind of shunned them because it kind of went against Christianity Mm. and went against their beliefs. And, um, but he, he got uh, Gertrude, um, he brought her up and got him to ask, you know, questions. And um, here's some of, of what was written down. 
And he said, will you tell us how the psychic work is accomplished through the body? So they wanted to know, like, how how Casey is being able to do this. And they've posed this question before. And Casey is like, or the source, is he says, in this trance state, the conscious mind is under subjugation of the subconscious mind or soul mind. It obtains its information from other subconscious minds or minds that have passed into the beyond. What is known to one subconscious mind and or soul is known to the other, whether conscious of the fact or not. So more of this metaphysical um, connections start to be into place and they really start to dig into this because this is what this guy, um, author Lamers, is really into. So he's basically saying like everybody's mind is connected at the subconscious level? Yes, basically. Ah. It's like all information um, that is subconscious is actually connected connected to like the internet of souls <laughs> the internet of souls that's a good title i'm gonna write that down <laughs> write that down tm <laughs> sorry i've been watching modern family yes <laughs> and the dad's always going tm <laughs> uh so they asked you know they're talking about astrology and they asked the source if planets had anything to do with destiny or the ruling of men and i'm going to change that the ruling of humans mm. and uh it says they do in the beginning as our own planet earth was set into motion the placing of all planets began the ruling of the destiny so i'm listening to this y'all on audible and <laughs> this is like so like my mind is trying to connect in dots okay the placing of other planets began the ruling of the destiny of all matter as created just as the division of waters was and is ruled by the moon and its path about earth. So just so as in the higher creation, as it began mm. is ruled by the action of the planets about the earth. I mean, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to dig into the grammar of that. To really... <laughs> oh my God, the strongest power in the destiny of man is the sun first and then the closer planets and and i mean it just it goes on and on and on and on talking about stuff like that um but it's bringing in you know astrology and and planets alignment and how it affects man men and at that time evangeline adams uh i think she was in new york was like the big astrologist of the stars kind of thing um back in the 1920 i think it was 1923 and um you know, she actually did a reading, I think, for Casey, and she said that he would always struggle and never be rich, kind of deal. And she like nailed. She, well, he did. He did like a, a reading for him, and then like her reading, he did a, a. And they don't call them like he didn't call them astrological readings. He called them um, life readings. So he did a life reading for him and then she did one and they pretty much matched up. And so Casey couldn't really ignore this anymore. So he did his first um, life reading, a really horoscope reading for lamers. And um, when he went under, the source was like all for it. Like the source had been waiting to talk about this apparently hmm. um, in their uh, sessions. One sec. (laughs) 
And it talked about, you know, birth being both physical and spiritual. And so they brought in the idea of maybe reincarnation. Well, they did bring in the idea of reincarnation. But what he was talking about with um, this is that a lot of times maybe when a baby is born, it doesn't automatically receive its soul until later on. Oh. Which is kind of an interesting thought. Explains all those evil ones. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it also is like when you were born, like the alignment of the planets, and this is what I got from it, and it, y'all can argue with me, any like KC experts out there, that the zodiac doesn't necessarily play like a huge role of when you were born, as people believe, but it's more as like how the planets affect you now. Like the alignment of the planets, you know, affect your personality now. It's not like, you know, if you're born Aquarius, then you're going to be this kind of person. Mm. Uh, it's not like they didn't believe that or that wasn't, you know, what the source was trying to say. And the source, like, would hint at all of this during multiple readings. And it talked, you know, about, you know, the flaws in the Egyptian astrology. Uh, it was more of a uh, a... I wrote down Puritan system, but it's not Puritan. It's, um, shit. Anyway, it wasn't the Egyptians. It was somebody else. It starts with the P and, and I just wrote it <laughs> down wrong. <laughs> Moving on. Um, but the big thing was like constructive growth through the control of human will. So he talked about, the source talked about human will a lot in this kind of astrology talk. And it talked about like people uh, who aligned with Mars being angry as, you know, Mars is an angry, but not acting on that anger, which we have control over as self will. So you can have righteous anger and it can be good. So you can align with Mars and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, this sounds like the old version of the Enneagram stuff. Right. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same. And you start and maybe, maybe, you know, that's kind of, connected somewhere down in here he's and so when he gave more readings when he's up in ohio um he's doing readings for his family and his friends and he's talking more about astrology and his readings and the source starts talking about sept septimus uh which actually is a planet and or that's what he was calling this planet that we didn't know about in the universe and oh. this was like in 1923 1924 and uh, he was actually referring to Pluto, which was discovered in 1930. But which isn't a planet. Take that source. Well, it isn't, or it is. Didn't they like re... Did they reinstate I, it? I think they reinstated <laughs> its planet status. And also, um, you know, talking about why the planets have influence and how that the uh, journey of the soul to those planets like come about so you know he, the source starts talking about souls live on other planets and occupy other planets and that they also live in other dimensions hmm. uh, saturn is supposed to be a purgatory and what each of these journeys to the planets are um, depending on where you are, you're supposed to, it prepares you to making, meeting the maker, basically. Oh, weird. It gets really fucking deep, y'all. And that's, I'm really skimming over, um, 
like I said, this this was a 24-hour long book, and I've made it into 12 hours, and then I just couldn't anymore. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting, these are the clip notes. <laughs> so accepting uh, astrology was was difficult. They they had a hard time with this because they are religious people. They are church people, and it went against like what you know the church and the and their interpretation of the Bible taught. They, you know, they were okay with the medical readings and the psychic like that fit into their belief system because it was more something that was helping. But this extra woo woo was just mm. like you know, church might call it you know. Satan was mm-hmm. like influencing them and whatnot. Souls on other planets. Souls, and such. right? Yeah. You know, just a little bit stepped outside. Like they were like going off the rail at this point. Um, but he was, you know, very interested. And in, in this small group of supporters there, uh, you know, were exploring it. And and with each, you know, he he didn't know what he was saying when he gave uh, the readings, and so like just studying what the source was talking about during their readings. And he starts talking about, you know, the soul and reincarnation, which is a popular Eastern um, religion is popular in Eastern religion and not so much Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so he told Lammers in this, you know, one of the several readings that he did for him that he was a, had been reincarnated three times and that he had once been a monk. And so Casey was like, okay, I told you that. So I'm going to do my own reading. So Casey did his own reading about himself and said, um, the source told him that he had been reincarnated seven times and that in one of those reincarnations, you could still find the remains in like a cave over in Europe and that he was a chemist, you know, in one of these other, uh, reincarnations and then before that he was like a high priest in egypt oh and um you know so more and more this is coming through so it's pretty much every time he goes under now it's talking about reincarnation it's talking about the souls and astrology and um you know the source had been hitting hinting you know about this for a while because they went back and they looked at the other transcripts but Edgar and um, Gertrude ignored it because they thought that would it's more like work of the devil open up to like evil things and whatnot but they keep playing with it and um, and the source keeps talking about reincarnation and you know you just feel like it's been waiting this whole time just to open up its guts and just tell it all (laughs) so this was all done in dayton ohio where he was and um like he was fully consumed with this he no longer wanted to return to selma so so he turned over his business to jb williams um to run the photo studio uh, in selma and he moved his family to dayton and um he has now like this full time team to do his readings. And so first and foremost, like, you know, he did his friends, he starts to do his children um, and talk about, you know, their incarnations. He does Gladys and uh, talks about, you know, she's been four people in her past lives. Like she was like a Royal, a Royal, a Puritan, and then also a, um, 
somebody that was from the continent of Alta, which was supposed to be a place that was here 10,000 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, I'm not going to get into the uh, Atlantis kind of talk that he goes into. He also gets into the life of Christ talk because that's like another show. Wow. Um, But this starts, you know, this starts to come up. And uh, one of the things that also he finds out from the source is that your past lives influence your current lives. So if you were beaten by men in a past life or treated poorly by men in a past life, uh, in your current life, you could have a fear of men. Mm. If you died by like being cut or stabbed or something in a past life, then your current life, you would have a fear of knives. Mm -hmm. So this starts to bring in a um, kind of the idea of of reincarnation karma. Hmm. During one of the readings, the source was talking, because it's not just like he says the thing and then like hangs up the phone kind of deal. (laughs) Uh, you know, he, he, he's going to like chit chat. He, he kind of chit chat like, meanders and flows. He's like, you know, not to make a uh, long story or a short story long or whatever, you know. Uh, but he, on one of the readings, it sounds like he was flipping or the way that he was, you know, talking is like, you know, he was flipping through a book. And one of the things that, again, Ed Casey is known for is the Akaskit. Akashic records, Akashic records <laughs> are basically the book of life. So it sounds like the source is like having access to the book of life because he would say things like, it was an awful day for people born in July 1915 kind of deal. You know, just weird things would come hmm. up like that that he would give. But he was off, the source was also, during the readings, limited as far as what he could say. He couldn't just, you know, tell you how the world's going to end or when the day you're going to die or, or anything like that. There See, was, that's always one of those caveats. It's like, why does that happen? There's, there's a, rule? a rule. Somebody's ruled. And we're like, <laughs> whose rule? Tell us. But apparently there are rules into place, in place. Maybe the fates, right? Mm. All right. One thing the soul did tell Gertrude is that she actually um, waited several hours before this, or her soul waited for several hours before she entered into her body after birth. Oh. And that her previous three lives, she was a courtesan in the French courts. (laughs) For three in a row? Wow. Ooh, thunder. Uh, she, uh, citizen of Greece and also an Egyptian nomad. So he's doing all of these readings for his friends and families. You know, they've got their system worked out. They're in Dayton, Ohio, and he hasn't done any medical readings and he's making no money. Mm -hmm. And he was expecting like a wad of cash from, uh, the photo studio down in Selma, but something happened and he ended up his father who is I think was running an art store that he also either was supporting or whatnot uh, 
didn't pay his bills. So he had all of these bills come up that he had to pay for his dad and it wiped them out. And then Lammers who like was supposed to be this rich guy with this huge printing company was told him that he would support him and his move to Ohio kept like, uh, uh, you know, not giving them any money and making excuses and stuff. So, it got really bad. Like the Dayton, Ohio section for Edgar was bad luck. Mm. Uh, they they moved up there. They they had no forethought. They moved from Selma, Alabama. He's mostly has been living in the South, and he moves up to Ohio, and they don't have any winter coats. Oh God! And so when he has to go pick up his son from you know they spend the last of their money getting the last of his family up to. Dayton, Ohio, where the rest of the family is, the only person that can meet him is Edgar. And it is because nobody has coats and Edgar doesn't have a coat. He like stuffed his shirt with newspaper. Oh my God. Um, and it was just, you know, it was like they were, they were broke. They were absolutely broke. I they, bet his kids hated him for that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, and so it was just a really, tough but they i don't know if they were just obsessed with like this new branch of um you know focus or or what but you know he continues talking about reincarnation reincarnation and karma and talking about it in more of a practical sense of you know here is what you did in the past and you need to learn from your past and so your subconscious memory is really an internal memory about your experience of the past. Hmm. Um, so they use like this term of car karmic debt. And, um, you know, if you were a certain kind of person in the past and then you, you, you know, hopefully counteract that, you know, y'all know how karma works, you know, in, in reincarnation, you know, you're supposed to like, if you're a jerk, you're going to be like reincarnated as a cockroach mm -hmm. kind of thing. So this whole thing was like, you know, moving up um, the scale, you know, doing better, learning from your past mistakes, from your past person. And he also talked about genealogy as being like a cosmic river and that, you know, everybody's life has, you know, a purpose and a direction but you're supposed to like improve upon it. It is up to you to improve upon it with willpower and stuff like that. So, you know, um, the steps that you go through, just like an Eastern teaching, I believe, is that, you know, the end of the road there when you achieve enlightenment is like you meet the creator. And, and that's basically what the source was telling him or either he was reading through Asian, you know, we don't know, mm -hmm. um, philosophy or uh, religion but he's he told in one of his sessions that jesus jesus was the first person to join the creator through this process hmm. which was interesting and um he did eventually it starts to sound like a pyramid scheme or something i know <laughs> i know, I, know. I, I mean he really like he goes like way deep into this and this really becomes um 
I don't know. I don't know if it, you know, I think this is what made him the uh, grandfather of the um, uh, art, the new age way yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah. this, this really what got him there. He did a reading for a, uh, a gay man. And uh, unfortunately the gay man was like really trying to probe like why he was this way and, and, and everything. And uh, he told him during the reading that he was this way because in his past life, he was a homophobic c cartoonist who had made fun in the newspaper of, um, you know, gay people. And uh, this was like his next karma thing huh. but i don't know if like it was telling him like because again you know the church you know look down on yeah. homosexuality and stuff so i don't know if this explanation was like you're this way um for punishment or for i mean i don't know it seems like if it goes with the theory that your job is to learn from things right that it wouldn't be as maybe as maybe much not punishment so much punishment as, as learning to love that every person in you right you know exactly which that's is hard to go for yeah that sounds that sounds like a good thing but you know again 1920s you know is not accepted yeah. at, at the time so i don't know but that was that was in there so basically if you're an asshole you're gonna pay with it in your next life mm -hmm. so you need to fix it and that was that was the message um that he was you know kept coming up with uh during this times but they needed money uh lamers was being lame and he <laughs> he ghosted uh casey but Lamer's business was tanking, and he actually went into uh, bankruptcy. So all the plans for the hospital fell through. Hey. Uh, so he's broke and stranded in this really cold place in Ohio. Um, so he starts doing medical readings, like one or two a day, just so that they can eat. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they don't have their support base. They don't have their church. One of the big things that, like, connected them to people when they moved to Selma was the church. Mm -hmm. And they don't have this there. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares who he is. Um, and it was just a really bad situation. But Casey, being the optimist, always, he, he says, you know, Money will come. You know, we will get through this. Money will come. And it did. So in 1925, Casey reported in a trance that the a source told him to move to Virginia Beach. Mm. And to move to a place across the street from the beach because the sands crystals would have like a uh, curative property to promote rapid healing. Well, with, I mean, just, just I mean, that's salt just air. Virginia Beach is going to be better than Dayton's. Right. <laughs> and so he, one of his acquaintances at this time was this guy named Morton um, Blumenthal. And he was a young man that worked in the stock exchange in New York and was doing a lot of trading. And he became very interested in Casey. He shared his outlook and he offered to finance his vision Um so he went and bought the Casey family a house in Virginia Beach oh. and was working on helping make the hospital a reality and his vision of this hospital a reality. So when he moved to Virginia Beach, the, uh, you know, readings became more uh, astrological. They say occult, but it's more like, you know, metaphysical, astrological, 
esoteric themes and stuff. And in uh, 1927, he formed uh, with uh, Blumenthal, he formed the Association of National Investigations in order to incorporate his company or his his readings um, to protect them legally. Mm-hmm. Uh, he people had to like sign a waiver stating that they know that this isn't like quote unquote real medicine, that this is an experiment in psychic research so that he wouldn't be like liable for anybody. Um, And the hospital start, you know, became a reality. And uh, October 11th of 1928, they did a dedication ceremony for a hospital complex. It had a lecture hall, a library, a vault for storage of the readings. It had offices for research work. It had a large living room. It had a 12-car garage (laughs) and a tennis court. Mm. So it was a practical result uh, resort (laughs) there. Uh, and the first patient was admitted like the next day. How many people do you did you remember how many people could be there? I no, I I, I have I didn't look up that up, but that'd be something to look up. Seems like at least twelve. At least twelve. <laughs> they bring their. Or at car. least there's a staff member of twelve. Yes. Right. So, uh, Casey wanted this facility to. Um, constantly check and recheck the remedies that he would um, speak about when he was in his trance. And that was one of the goals. So if we remember like way back um, that, you know, he wanted this hospital so he wouldn't have to deal with, you know, he could deal with a group of people that already believed that were already on board so they can streamline this process instead of him constantly having to fight with medical people and constantly mm-hmm. having to do the dog and pony show um, of having to prove who he was. Um, so it, this is becoming a reality and, and people started getting on board. Uh, Mosley Brown, who was head of the psychology department at Washington and Lee U- university, uh, became convinced of the readings and joined the association. And, um, you know, it started, it started to work. They started to, you know, more and more people signed up. Uh, again, one of the purposes of the hospital was to have consistency, to have, you know, to make record of these remedies that he was coming up with that he supposedly didn't know that he was saying so that, you know, many of the illnesses, um, you know, that people had would be kind of repetitive. Mm -hmm. And so they could produce like this compendium of um, cures and this could be used by medical professionals because, you know, again, he he wanted to support the medical community. He wanted to add to it. Uh, He had a chemist on board that was there at the hospital who was on board and would produce these medicines that, Casey talked about they actually produced something called adamandine which is like an absorbable form of iodine Hmm. and um, they sold that there and he you know while doing all this medical stuff one of the things that he kind of either had been talking about all along or figured out through the process is that he wanted to um, you know he wanted to create like an assimilating system. He wanted, he said he wanted like this assimilation of needed properties 
uh, to heal people like through the digestive system from like food intake. To, like he wanted like the whole person, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. He wanted to include, you know, all the schools. Um, he wanted to be holistic. He wanted, you know, uh, the types of treatment given uh, to the person to, so that the person can achieve the proper equilibrium um, and, you know, have your system like align, I guess, or mm -hmm. become, you know, one big working properly machine so that you could not, you would not get ill. Live forever. Live forever. But some of these uh, therapies included like salt packs, poultices, hot compresses, color healing, hmm. magnetism. Color healing. Yes. Vibrator treatment. What? Vibrate. what? Okay, I'm on that. <laughs> Massage, which could maybe go along with the vibration yeah, treatment. There, vibrator treatment. Um, osteopathic manipulation, which is like chiropractor. Uh, dental therapy, uh, colonics, enemas, antiseptics, inhalants, homeopathics, essential oils, mm. and mud baths. So like the full gamut, <laughs> all the orifices. You know, it's some of that sounds like like the old like European spas, like right. the health spas and medi spas, mm -hmm. but not all of it. Not <laughs> right. There was no leaching. Not, there no. was no color therapy. No color therapy. <laughs> Uh, some of the things that he would use, of course, would be oils, salts, herbs, iodines, witch hazel, magnesia, bismuth, alcohol, castoria, castoria. Uh, castor oil. Yeah, which basically, that would probably be castor oil. Um, like on Tom and Jerry. Nobody ever liked to take castor oil. Right. It was a big thing. Uh, lactate, pepsin, turpentine, charcoal, animated ash. Soda, cream of tartar, um, aconite, laudium, campho, and gold solution. Color therapy may be connected to the chakras. That sounds that sounds right. That I had to look it up because I was just like, wow. So yes. So all of these things were prescribed to overcome conditions that prevented proper digestion and assimilation of the needed nutrients nutrients from the prescribed diet. Uh, he basically was like gut health matters. I mean, at the end of the day, and probiotics, baby, probiotics, <laughs> you know, his readings were aimed at producing a healthy body through all of these treatments and which is comes the new age mm -hmm. stuff. And, um, you know, and the, when he would, you know, they would put, you know, the patients on all of these things and then he would do the reading, uh, you know, when the patient's recovery would become like problematic or there was something else wrong. So it's like, try these things first, take this pill. If it doesn't work, you know, call me on Monday kind of thing. And there was people like ate this up. There were waiting lists oh, wow. months ahead of time. And so, um, the the Blumenthal guy was like, oh, this is great. This is a great investment. Let's talk about a university. So they started plans for a university. Um, it would uh, be a supplement to the hospital. The plans, of course, were very grandiose. It dwarfed the hospital, and it was like a rival. They envisioned it to be like this rival to like the other major uh, universities and make, you know, psychic studies respectable. 
and they wanted it to open in 1930. Well, a little bit later on, um, you know, Blumenthal wanted, like, they were having problems with money, mm. of course, because, you know, 12 car garage. I was just going to ask whether this meant he wasn't broke anymore. I was like, I bet you, you might say, no, that's not what that means. Yeah. So Blumenthal was like, look, I got money. Let me, I'll take over ownership of the hospital and curb some of these expenses. Isn't the depression about to happen? Mm -hmm. Oh no. And so, you know, after like a semester of this happening, uh, they like gave up the university idea and they actually, uh, ended up closing down the association in 1931, mm. and Casey removed all the files um, from the reading of his readings from the hospital and took them home. So basically, it went belly up. Like they even though there were all these people, like all well, you know, Casey. Like I don't know what their accounting was, mm-hmm. but he was all the time just helping people out who. Like didn't either didn't have the money to pay or say they didn't have the money to pay or he felt sorry for, mm-hmm. um, but you know the pr- depression came and he wanted to turn his attention to more spiritual teachings to help people during this time, and his friends and family came to him was like, well, how can we become psychic like you? How can we like do this thing to kind of like spread and and create more and help people more? And so they ask the, um, the source this, and this actually, you know, this question became, they say like an 11 year discourse that led up to the creation of study groups. That so, was the next 12 hours of your book. Yes. <laughs> the 11 year discourse. It really yes, <laughs> I totally believe it. Um, in his altered state, Casey relayed to the group that the purpose of life is not to become psychic, but to become more spiritually aware and a loving person. So just, okay. you know, this your path is just to care more about others and, um, you know, learn about your chakras. <laughs> so the study group number one um, was told that they could bring light to a waiting world and that these lessons would still be, and that these lessons would still be taught a hundred years into the future, which is not wrong. Hmm. It's still the, the group that they formed is still like a thing. Huh. So the readings that he was doing now are about dreams, about uh, coincidences, uh, about developing intuition, about the Akaskic records, um, astrology, past life relationships, soulmates, and other esoteric subjects. Okay. There are hundreds of books that have been published about like Casey and his influence. If they're not on Casey, they reference him. There are just so, it's so much information, um, so much information on his readings that were recorded. And um, in June 6, 1931, uh, 61 people attended a meeting uh, and decided to carry on the work in a new form or a new organization. And this was called the Association for Research and Enlightenment, or otherwise ARM, which is A-R-M, ARM. Where's the M come from? Sorry. R. (laughs) A-R-E. I'm trying to make it ARM. (laughs) It's ARM. We are. We are. Okay, so it's R. Thank you for catching that. Um. 
so they formed this group, which is still like carrying on the legacy today oh. and you can become a member of, but back in this time, uh, he, he formed this new group. They had new focus. Uh, apparently money started coming in somehow and Casey was legally able to like, um, move his work, move his new organization into a place that he bought and he gave back the house that he was living in that belonged to Blumenthal. So he he didn't owe anybody. And the new members of this arm (laughs) movement here or his group, they were, you know, they were churchgoers. They were Protestants. They were people um, from uh, Catholic church, uh, Christian science, uh, some Asian, Asian uh, religions. You know, it was like anybody he, he opened up to any, anybody and everybody because his philosophy was that he, you know, if it makes you a better member of your, your church, then it's good. Like it went hand in hand with their beliefs his belief that basically, you know, be a better person, live, learn from your past life that he would, him or the source was, was preaching. And, um, he wanted to make sure that they knew that he was, you know, he was a Christian, so he was not opposing the, the teachings of the church, but he saw that R as part of our a R E as part of a um you know kind of like a support guide mm-hmm. to you know where you where you were and that the work was not something new but something that was ancient and universal hmm. so world war ii happened both of his sons went to war they were okay they came back and in 1943 uh, the only biography written about Casey during his lifetime came out, and it was called There is a River by Thomas Segru. And one of the things that this book did was, like, increase public demand for Casey. Mm-hmm. So the war's going on. The, uh, he had to increase staff, office staff. Uh, his mailman could no longer carry all the mail that was coming in. So Gertrude had to, like, go to the post office and grab the mail by car. <laughs> and Casey, of course, read every single letter. His boys were in at war, so they couldn't help. And so he he also picked up, like, his reading to, like, four or six sessions a day. And, you know, another article was written about him, and he gained national prominence and became like this, you know, this in this high profile article, which got him more attention. And because, you know, World War II has taken a toll on the people left behind and the soldiers, then he decided that he, you know, it was his duty to help ease the conscience and the minds of the people who had sons over there. And so he would do readings for free, and he never turned down anybody. So he increased the frequency of his readings even more. And, like, the piles of requests just kept going and going. And it ended up taking a toll on his health. And he was emotionally drained. He was, like, fatigued. Surprisingly, like, the naps did not help him at all. (laughs) The eight to ten naps a day he was taking didn't help him at all. Uh, the when he would do the readings, the source 
would scold him for like attempting to do too much. Like oh, his wow. subconscious was like, you've got to stop. And basically the source told him that, um, you are going to rest until all is well or, or you're dead. And that was like one of the last things that he said, um, after he collapsed, like in 1944. Oh, so, they were like, okay, we got to take a break. So him and Gertrude went away to the Virginia mountains. And while they were there, Casey suffered a stroke at the age of 67. And um, that was in September of 44. And then January 3rd of 1945, he ended up dying. And Gertrude died three months later. Aww. So Edgar Casey is buried in Riverside Cemetery in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Hopkinsville. Yes. So the association continues to work. Um, his work, they, they classified everything. They work on like the cross-referencing that his um, uh, stenographer was doing. And, um, you know, they keep up his work. And uh, if you become a member, you can read. He has, he has like, was it 14,000? He has 14,000 readings that if you become a member, you can read. Oh, really? And, um. Have you thought about becoming a member? Well, you know, I think it's like maybe like $14.99 a month or $8.99 a month. It's like very reasonable. Mm -hmm. So I did think about it. I, mm -hmm. I did look at it. And, um. I think it'd be really interesting to read them. It, it really, but there's so many books. There's so many books that I think people have written after reading the readings, mm -hmm. reading the readings. You could just read some, like read the, like not interpret, I guess the interpretation. The interpretations. Them, so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it would be like interesting to like read the actual like shorthand or what was being said or put down at the time. But in the end, the work of Casey and the source was basically this don't be a dick mm. make good choices and gut health matters <laughs> <laughs> the source is like that is not what i said <laughs> <laughs> eat your yogurt eat your yogurt don't be a dick don't be a dick is the most important lesson though really. yes it, it really is but there yeah there are sections where he talks about atlantis he talks about the life of christ um there's just so much more that i just really glossed over because i just when he goes metaphysical i just yeah. my brain just kind of melted well down if it's anything like what you were that like section that yes. you were reading holy cow yes i I, I just want to find like the subject and verb of each sentence. <laughs> I, know, right? I just need, I need to break it down into a subject and verb. That's thing. what I was thinking. I was like, I would have to just, I would have to diagram all of these to make any sense out of them. Oh my gosh. That's really cool story. It is. It that's, is. And I've never, I've never, never heard of him. Never heard of him. Not, it, but he's huge. Well, I mean, we're, it's not like we're like in the new age stuff. And everything. Well, but. and the the book that you there is a river. I think that may be a hymn. That may be the name of a a hymn also. Because I was like, I've heard of that. It, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. But um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Well, it's kind of. I mean, it's cool that he spent his whole life 
I don't know. I want to look into more of this like souls living on other planets thing. Yeah, that 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 was very interesting, and 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 it goes in more. I don't think I did it justice to how they they talk about it, but it was it was interesting about how your subconscious, which he equals to maybe your soul, chooses like the next life that it needs to take in order to fulfill what wasn't done or what was done poorly in the previous life. Hmm. So it's like your soul is trying to help you reach the end with the pot of gold, which is like being with the creator. It's nice to know that my soul is on board with that. That's yes. a little less stress on me. It is. It is a little less stress. And that, you know, purg- purgatory is like Saturn. So, like, if you go to purgatory, you probably just hang out with some people, souls on Saturn. <laughs> There's, you know. I have to look this up. I really do have to look this up. I, I don't know how that works. Also, Atlantis, though, because I'm pretty sure that the Atlantis theories came up in this stuff that I'm looking at this week too well it makes sense well it all has to do everywhere well it has to do well well, his his thing was that atlantis was between the gulf of mexico and the mediterranean sea and that maybe that when the plates pulled apart that something happened of course i didn't read that part Mm -hmm. so i'm just conjecturing here just um but that's where it was. But if they were, everything was pushed together, and if it was like you know mm-hmm. Atlantis there in the middle, then you have like your Appalachians, and then they pull apart, and mm-hmm. then Atlantis pulls apart. I don't know. I don't know. This is how legends get made. Anything is possible. <laughs> Anything's possible. Not really, but kinda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait for our book. <laughs> All right. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Thank you. We appreciate you so much. We do. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. But in the end, the work of Casey and the source was basically this. Don't be a dick. Mm. Make good choices. And gut health matters. (laughs) The source is like, that is not what I said. (laughs) Eat your yogurt. Eat your yogurt. Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick is the most important lesson, though. Yes, it, it really is.